0: from Luke chapter 24 verses 44 through the end of the chapter and then we'll go straight to Revelation chapter 5 Then he said to them These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Revelation 5 Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to open the scroll and to, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living cre- creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing this is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, we thank you for that picture. Thank you that you equipped John to see into the heavens, to behold the glory of the Lamb. Father, we pray that you would captivate us, that you would cause us to glorify your name this morning by exploring your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and that you would open up our eyes to this glorious reality of who Jesus Christ is. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful Ascension Sunday we are here to celebrate. We have celebrated Ascension now for about five or six years as a church, and um, we have now come to a text which I have longed to get to. The reason it has taken us this long is because the Gospels have multiple pictures of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have spent time dutifully examining those examples. We won't be looking in our sermon today at Luke 24, but I thought it was helpful to read for the background of what takes place in Revelation chapter 5. Beyond all the other Christian holidays and celebrations throughout the church calendar, perhaps the most neglected in the modern Christian era is that of the Ascension. There are Christmas cards, there are Easter cards, there are even Pentecost cards at some Christian bookstores. There are no Ascension cards. The Ascension is the most neglected in the modern practice of the church. That is, the church that doesn't use the the church calendar throughout the entire year of their church life, like we do, at least they celebrate things like Easter and Christmas and Pentecost and perhaps some other days. To be fair, it is true that Christ's birth, His suffering, His death and resurrection are all vital in the history of the redemption. It makes a lot of sense that Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost are still the, the, the high celebrations in the life of the church. Remembering and proclaiming these events and understanding their impact for the church today is actually essential to the Christian faith. We shouldn't elevate the ascension over and against diminishing anything else. But my question that I want to ask this morning is, by missing what the ascension is and means, is it actually causing us to have a lackluster understanding of Jesus' current reign? What are we missing when we diminish or disemphasize or do not emphasize the ascension of Jesus Christ? The ascension of Jesus into heaven is the ultimate vindication of the Father for the obedience of the Son. Even greater than the resurrection In this sense, it is as if a snowball is coming down a hill, and the ascension which takes place after the resurrection is a greater, redounding, and a magnification of the Father's vindication of the Son's obedience. The ascension of Jesus into the heavens is not just a capstone of His own life, death, and resurrection, but as we will see this morning in the chapter of Revelation 5, it is the culmination of all of human history. Unlike all other men, Jesus, where they failed, has submitted to God's command and is therefore worthy to leave the earth and ascend into heaven to enter blessing. Therefore, in the book of Revelation, John beholds a drama in the heavenly throne room as the lamb is not found and then at once enters, having conquered by being slain That's my main point this morning, is that Jesus in Revelation 5 is shown as one who conquers by being slain. And he does it for one specific purpose, that God's people would be redeemed as a kingdom and priests to God. Therefore, I want to look at this passage in three ideas. First, a crisis that exists in this throne room. Then, after this crisis is explored, there's an entrance of the Lamb, which I take to be a spiritual perspective on what takes place in the ascension. And then I want to look at how there is a new song in all of creation that actually mirrors and answers the crisis at the beginning of the chapter. And then finally, I want to look at three specific ways how we must live in the light of Christ's current reign. Through God's grace, John in the book of Revelation records a revelation, not of the end of all things, but a revelation, as it says in chapter 1, of Jesus Christ. And this revelation of Jesus Christ was given for the church. In modern reading and preaching, revelation is often an avoided book. We don't know what to do with the symbolism, and it's been so twisted in the last few generations especially that we are afraid of repeating the errors of those who've come before us. Revelation has been, more than any other book in the Bible, has been twisted for fruitless purposes. However, despite the errors of those generations which have come before us, Failing to understand the book of Revelation as encouragement from God will actually leave us spiritually malnourished. It is not possible to react to the error of the use by taking away the appropriate use. Often we use a phrase that the the wrong abuse or the abuse of the thing does not take away the right use of the thing. God gave the book of Revelation to reveal the glory of Christ, not for prognosticating about the end of all things. There is nothing about helicopters in the book of Revelation, brothers and sisters. It is not a book to tell us when catastrophes will take place. No, God gave the book to the church for encouragement. And therefore, when we read, we must read not only with the purpose of encouragement, we must get fruit out of that reading. In this letter, therefore, John beholds glorious spiritual realities which were shown to him to give to the church in every age. If the book of Revelation is about the end of all things, then what does the book of Revelation have to say to the first century church or to the 21st century church? Because, newsflash, as the way I read the book, the entire book, the end is not near. We have a lot of work to do. That's a topic for another day. But I want to encourage you the book is relevant to you today, just as it was relevant in the first century church. It is not about the impending coming of the Lord Jesus, it is about who Jesus actually is. By the Spirit, John, in the beginning of his letter, after addressing some churches, beholds this throne room scene of heaven. He beholds the scene of heaven in which God reigns and receives worship from the heavenly creatures. After describing the glory of the Lord God Almighty, John describes a glory and a terror coming forth from the throne of God. Verse uh, Revelation 5 Uh, 1 through 14, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This revelation of who God is was given to John for a purpose, to encourage the church. Verse 2 says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. He is noticing a, a crisis in the heavenly throne room. He is noticing that no one is able to open the scroll. In the book of Revelation chapter 4, John describes what goes on beyond the, be, uh, uh, among and beyond the throne. He describes what takes place around the throne in Revelation 4, 5. He says, "...from the throne came flashes of lightning." Those of you who encountered this storm the other day, I want you to remember I was with my mom when we lost power at 5.07 and instantly, kaboom, huge lightning, which came seconds or maybe 15 seconds after the light had arrived. The thunder was so great that the light moved at the speed of light for us to see and then the sound caught up later. Such a great thunder was going on in this human storm. Imagine what John is perceiving in the spirit. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And beyond the throne or before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John is beholding a terrifying picture of the glory of the Almighty such that he knows he would not be able to enter on his own were this not a gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. He goes on in verse 3 to say, answering this challenge of the angel, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This angel's challenge and the creation-wide search of what goes on, looking for someone to open the scroll, teaches us something of what the scroll is and why it's important. Essentially, this scroll in John's vision is a picture of what is in the Almighty's hand. It is a picture of the will of God, his redemptive plan, and later, as we'll see, the judgments of God against evil. This answers the question of why does John weep? What's so important about taking this scroll and loosing its seals? John weeps because this scroll is the solution to the lack of worship on the earth. In Revelation 4, John sees the Almighty And he sees four living creatures and 24 elders sitting on thrones surrounding the throne of the Almighty. But the great dilemma that begins to be seen in Revelation 4 and is apparent when we get to Revelation 5 and we go through this search of all the things that are in heaven and all the things that are on the earth and under the earth is that there's worship for God in heaven, but there is no worship for God on the earth. If you go back and reread Revelation 4 and 5, you see this great crisis and great dilemma. Without someone to unloose the scrolls, the entire purpose of creation, to give God ultimate glory, will not happen. If the people cannot be redeemed, they cannot worship God. If the scroll cannot be read and fulfilled and undone or loosed and applied to God's earth, then the earth is pointless. Essentially, the scroll can be thought of as a sort of title deed to the earth. The one who opens this scroll is going to deliver the earth from wickedness. In Revelation 6 and 7, we see that as the lamb looses the scroll, God is able to pour out judgments against the wicked on the earth, not destroying the earth, delivering the earth from wickedness. Without the scroll being opened, evil will prevail And the creation will not worship its creator. This creation-wide search, it's important to see, does not just cover every place, but in the apocalyptic language of John's letter, it applies to all of human history. As the last letter in the Bible, John's letter helps us to understand the entire scope and arc of everything that comes before it in Scripture. Creation history begins with God creating the heavens and the earth. Isn't that right? In in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there's this just parentheses. There's nothing said there. There's nothing said about something that can unify these two realms of God's creation. Then immediately throughout the Bible, we begin to read story after story of men who are on the earth who refuse to submit to heaven's command. Adam fails to submit to God's command, and therefore is expelled out of the small little paradise that God gave. The garden, as God intended, was to be a microcosm or a small earthly picture of the heavenly throne room, that God would come and dwell with men in this garden. Adam fails, however, to submit to God, and therefore he is expelled from that garden. Likewise, the men in Noah's day sin continually, and they are taken away from the earth by the flood. They're expelled from the world. Even Moses, who went up on the mountain with God, fails in the wilderness. He escapes Egypt, but he doesn't make it into the promised land. Do you begin to see a picture? Men on earth are not submitting to heaven's command, and therefore they cannot dwell in righteousness. Later on, after Israel comes into the land, the kings of Israel and Judah turn after the gods of the Canaanites. And not only they, but the entire nation, both Israel and Judah, are exiled out of the promised land into Babylon and Assyria. The picture over and over, brothers and sisters, is we are joining John on this creation-wide, history-wide search, and no one's worthy to open the scroll Therefore, John is weeping because he knows that all men throughout history have sinned and they have turned aside to their own way. John's weeping teaches us this, that no man we trust in or idol that we fashion is powerful enough to take the scroll. In verse 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In in the face of John's loud weeping, this elder commands John to behold the lion's victory. He says, the lion has conquered so that he can open the scroll. Therefore, the, lion, the lion's arrival is to be the end of all things, of all causes for weeping for John. Later on in the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that there will be no more weeping in the heavenly city. The reason and because of that is not because the city is a better place to live than the earth, but because the lion lamb has been revealed. He is the end for all the weeping. John is called to recognize in this lion All of the longings and desires, not only for his own life, but for the point of history. The lion's arrival into the throne room is the culmination for why God made everything. That is why the ascension is important. Ultimately, by the arrival of this lion, the great crisis in the throne room is ended. The creation-wide search comes to an end. The world is not lost forever, and therefore, there's reason for celebration. John then turns to behold this lion as he's commanded, behold the lion, and as he turns he sees something remarkably different. In verse 6 he writes, and behold, or, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Instead of seeing a lion who has conquered, John beholds a different scene. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How directly opposed are lions and lambs in creation. Amen? Lions can chase down and hunt any prey they wish. There are few animals which a lion cannot take down, and there are no animals which a lamb can defeat. The question we ask when we see this lamb, and and he's standing there, is why wasn't the lamb discovered in the creation-wide search? The lamb who now appears is worthy, unlike all of those who are not worthy to take the scroll. What this tells us is this lamb is not a man of the creation, but rather a unique person unlike anything in creation. The lamb is not a part of the creation, though he looks like a creature. This lamb is, as Paul says in Colossians one twenty-six, he is the mystery hidden for ages and for generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's actually the case that you and I know this lamb well. Before all of Israel, John the Baptist at the beginning of John chapter 1 testified publicly of Jesus Christ, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Lamb has now entered into the throne room and is ready to receive the kingdom. In verse 7, And he, the Lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Amazingly, despite the terror around the throne of the Almighty, the Lamb approaches the throne. No one runs to take something from the Almighty. The Lamb has the right and power to walk up to the Almighty and to take the scroll out of His hand. Not only has the Lamb been slain, but He has conquered by being Slain. He has fulfilled the Almighty's will and is confirmed at this moment as perfect in his presence. Now the Lamb completes his victory by receiving the authority and power to wield God's judgments from the throne. What John and we now see in this passage is fulfillment of what Daniel, the prophet, spoke long ago in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Daniel, likewise, like John, is seeing into the throne room, and Daniel, by the Holy Spirit, beholds what will happen in the latter days of the Messiah. He says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one, like a son of man, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What an amazing vision John is seeing another picture of what Daniel also saw and wrote. After the Lamb takes this scroll, a great and dramatic change takes place in heaven. Brothers and sisters, notice clearly what we will read in the next few verses. The the creatures, the living creatures, the 24 elders, all of the angels who were worshiping the Almighty begin to start to worship the Lamb. From the rest of Scripture, we know that creatures who are worshiped are destroyed. Do you remember when Herod was giving an oration before the city? And the people start to say to him, the voice of a man, and, or the voice not of a man, but of a God. It says that the angel of the Lord came and struck him down right away. This is what takes place in all of Scripture when creatures are worshiped and they do not cease or stop that worshiping or or cast off that worshiping. When creatures are worshiped, they are destroyed. But when this lamb does not refuse worship, we not only know that he's not part of the creation, we know that this lamb is God himself. and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The new song of heaven that they sing, these these four living creatures and the 24 elders, this new song of heaven teaches a most profound truth about the Lamb's humble victory. He is worthy to take the scroll because he was slain. Clearly, in this creation-wide search that we experienced at the beginning of Revelation 5, worthiness to take the scroll or ability to take the scroll isn't about spiritual power. It's ultimately about submission to God. The reason that God entrusts his kingdom to this lamb is that the lamb has obeyed in all things, whereas no other man in all of creation has. The lion conquered by becoming like a lamb and being slain. He reigned on the earth by submitting to the reign of heaven. The lamb, notice closely, brothers and sisters, the lamb was able to take the scroll because he already lived out its contents. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 5 through 7, I've, I've referenced this passage for the last four weeks in a row. And I can't stop referencing it because of what it says about the Lord Christ. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, we read, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Notice closely. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, where? In the scroll. It's in the scroll. The scroll is about the Lamb and about His willingness to obey heaven and to obey the will of the Father, although that scroll says, you are to take a body and you are to come and atone for the sins of God's people to make them a kingdom and priests to God. This is why the Lamb is able to take the scroll, Therefore this song of heaven that celebrates the outpouring of the lamb's blood teaches that the church was redeemed by this blood. This group of people that was doomed to destruction and futility has now been ransomed by the shedding of the lamb's blood to atone for sin. This people that that is called from every tribe and tongue and people and nation is not a particular nation like Israel or Rome, but rather is a brand new people, a nation that is called out from every nation. In Ecclesia, the, the ones who are called out from the world to join this new people of God. The lamb is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How will all the nations of the earth be blessed if Israel alone is the people of God? The mystery which was hidden in Christ from before all ages is that Israel is not the people of God, but was just a beginning picture of all the nations coming and dwelling with God and with this Lamb. The Lamb's self-sacrifice has fulfilled all of God's promises. These people, therefore, are not just redeemed from destruction, but are given a new purpose. It is not as if the Lamb's blood just wipes the slate clean for these people, for this group of people, but rather He sets them apart to holy service. Heaven is singing the Lamb's praises because of the amazing power of the Lamb's work. He says, They say of Him, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Though they were filthy, ruined sinners, now they are washed saints set apart for holy service in God's kingdom to mediate as priests, to mediate the presence of God to the world around them. By the Lamb's entrance into heaven, now a greater sound of worship has been awakened. In Revelation 4, we hear the living creatures and the 24 elders worshiping God. But in Revelation 4, nothing is actually said of the angels and nothing is said of the creation. In verse 11, John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders... He heard around the throne, around the living creatures, and around the elders. What did he hear? The voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands upon thousands. They begin to say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. They repeat the song that was sung of the Almighty, but they change who they address, and instead of just the elders and the living creatures, now the angels of heaven begin to start to sing, because the great redemptive plan of God has been carried out. Finally, the revelation of his victory on the earth, and his ascension now into the heavens, unleashes true praise from the earth to join with heaven's song. In verse 13, it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see, the lamb does not take pla- take the place of the worship of the almighty. And earth does not silence out heaven, but rather they join together. And now everything in the earth and everything in the heavens joins together for the purpose of why it was made, to give glory to the Almighty and to the Lamb. Verse 14, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In closing, I want to look at three ideas about why this passage should shape our lives. The question is, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, to be a kingdom and priest to God, how should this passage shape our lives? Why does it matter that we know what takes place in the ascension of Jesus Christ? We are presented with mysterious language, brothers and sisters. Wonderful language that is is fully biblical in the sense of how you can understand it. You have to know the whole scope and sequence of Scripture. But it is supposed to. John gives us not just a picture of what's going on in the heavens, but he does so to encourage us today and to transform how we live our lives by beholding the glory of the Lord. The first application from this text, the one that is perhaps so subtle you may miss it, is this. First, we should understand that no one we trust in, nor any idol we have fashioned can rival Jesus Christ. No one was worthy to take the scroll. And that creation-wide search was not just at the time when John lived, but by the Spirit, he saw all of creation history. No one in heaven and earth was able to take the scroll. None of the patriarchs, none of the prophets, none of the kings were able to take the scroll. None of the presidents... None of the senators, none of the empires or emperors were able to take the scroll. None of the pastors were able to take the scroll. Ultimately, everything that we trust in, everything that we place our ultimate hope in, if it is not undergirded by the Lamb, it will come to nothing. No one is worthy to take the scroll save for the Lamb. Second, we should understand that the depiction of Jesus Christ as the lion and lamb is given to us to captivate and transform our souls. Jesus is depicted in this passage as a powerful, mysterious, and ultimately terrifying being who has fulfilled the eternal purposes of God. The reason this language was given to you, again, as I said at the beginning, was not to make some sort of prognostication about the end of the world, but is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this language, unless we are so familiar with the rest of Scripture, is often off putting. Imagine this a lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also called a root. And then he's described as a lamb who looks like he's a zombie lamb. He's been slain, but He's standing. If we we don't read with harmony with the rest of Scripture, we go off into weird places. What does it mean that He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God? It's so easy for us to say, oh, eyes are prophetic, and therefore it's wisdom, and seven horns, well, that's authority, and we truncate The meaning of the text, we are actually given this passage so that we would wrestle with and glory in and delight in the Holy Spirit communicating to ourselves spiritual unseen things through written words. There is no greater use of your intellect, imagination, or time than to join John as he is commanded by the elder to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is why you were given imaginations, that's why you were given a book. It was to captivate your souls. Our souls were made by God to be thrilled with the awe and the wonder of the person of Jesus Christ and of his work. The language of these scriptures, when engaged with prayer, is used by God to do what Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthians, that we would behold the glory of the Lord so that we might be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. When we fail to do this, we inevitably drift to looking at worthless things. What is the answer to being captivated by entertainment? What's the answer to being captivated by pornography? What's the answer of being captivated by the pride of of being seen as great by other people? It's to become lost in awe at looking at the lion and the lamb as given to you in the pages of Holy Scripture. That is why we were given this passage, is to be captivated, to be transformed by the Scriptures to behold Jesus Christ. The third and final application from this text that I want to make is that we must learn to live in the light of His current reign on the throne. Without the lamb conquering on the earth, he would never ascend into the heavens. But in fact, his entrance into the throne room means that he has already conquered. He has already conquered everything which might conquer you. And because he has conquered, he will never be defeated. Therefore, we can have perfect confidence, not in our ability to not be conquered, but in his ability to preserve us even when we are being conquered. Imagine, praise be to God, that none of us lost our homes. Imagine if you did lose your home. If your your life is destroyed when your things are destroyed, then you are not living in the light of His current reign. Ultimately, our destiny as Christians is to behold the Lamb whom we are are journeying to His entrance into the throne room to stand next to the throne means that he reigns now. He is not waiting to begin his reign, as some have falsely interpreted this book. Therefore, we never need fear that he can be defeated. Imagine this, going into the next challenge and wondering if Jesus can be defeated. Perhaps there's some other earthly power or spiritual power which can topple the Lord Christ. In this passage, we heard a creation-wide, time-wide search, and no one else could take the scroll. Jesus stands alone as conqueror who can never be defeated. Likewise, we not only need not fear that he can be defeated, we need never fear that he will rule ruthlessly. He's not a tyrant or some sort of almighty power who has no mercy and is just squashing evil. He's the lamb who conquered by being conquered. He will judge with perfect and right judgment. He will never rule over his people ruthlessly because he's the sort of king that dies on the people's behalf. Ultimately, we can trust him. We can trust him with our destinies. We can trust him in the moment of when it looks like we are being conquered because he ultimately has been conquered and conquered. As he is the king of the kingdom and we are to be his priests under Him to reign upon the earth, we are supposed to learn how to conquer in the way that He did, just like Him, taking up our cross, laying down our lives in the hope of being raised in new life, in victory. Therefore, my calling to you this morning is that as those who are redeemed by the Lamb, called to be His kingdom and priests to Him, let us worship and adore Him continually, trusting that his reign is perfect. His reign is perfect, brothers and sisters. He's ascended. He's unified all things in heaven and earth so that the point of creation can now be fulfilled, and he reigns on your behalf. And as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, mystery of mysteries, by being united by faith through the Holy Spirit, you are already beginning to reign with him. You're seated in Christ in heavenly places, and oh, that we would learn to trust him so that we could live lives of bold risk for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave John a revelation of Jesus Christ to show to your servants. We pray now that your spirit would come and that you would thrill us with who Jesus is, that we would, by your Spirit, be able to behold the Lamb slain. As it says in another place in Revelation, the Lamb slain from before the foundations of the earth were laid. We pray, Lord, that you would captivate us and that we would be transformed and delivered from fear of of failure and fear that you cannot reign in the midst of tough circumstances and that you would grant us the joy of following the lamb to the cross and that we would not only go to the cross through our walks, but that we would enter into the tomb with the hope of you raising us to new life. We thank you, Father, that you've given this picture of your son to us. We pray that you would cause us on earth to be able to join with heaven, to say, worthy are you, O lamb of God. We thank you, Lord. Amen.